Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on the Reformed faith. Welcome to Lightning in the Fog, week five, the heartbeat and hurdles of the Reformed faith. In the first four weeks, we looked at where did they come up with this stuff anyway? You know, where did this uh, sort of, we, we looked kind of historically about about where Reformed theology came from and sort of an overview of the kind of conclusions they came to as they got back in that, in the 1500s, as they got back to studying the Bible and say, what would Christianity look like and believe if all we had as our authority was the scriptures? So that's how we ended up with what we ended up with. And tonight, we want to start talking about uh, four hurdles. There are more than four, but these are four that I decided I wanted to talk about. You may have other hurdles that maybe we could do another time. But tonight, we want to talk about the enigma of election. And it took me a long time to find that E, enigma. Uh, I went through my whole thesaurus. I want something that would have an E in it, enigma of election. And this doctrine of election and predestination uh, for many is a sticking point, troubling point, a grisly point in the chicken that you're eating. It's just like, oh, what, you know, how can that be? So let's talk about first, what is this doctrine? I've got to have a simple statement of it. What is the doctrine of election? Unconditional election means that God simply picked those he would save for his own reasons. In other words, we don't know. Uh, not because of anything man does or would do. It is all of God's grace. And not because he looked down the corridor of time and saw who would be obedient and who would repent and have faith. So we can state it very simply, uh, like other doctrines that we also have a hard time explaining. The Trinity, the incarnation of Christ, how the Bible can be written by men, but be the authoritative and infallible word of God. We have lots of doctrines that we can state, but we have a hard time, or we can't really fully explain. But some of them trouble us more than others. Uh, most people don't lose any sleep over the incarnation these days, or the Trinity. They just, you know, we just take it. But there's some doctrines that trouble us a bit more, and we want to look at why that is with this particular doctrine. So why do Presbyterians and Reformed guys keep insisting on uh, this doctrine? Uh, well, the first reason is it's uh, biblical. And that's the foremost reason. Everything else uh, wouldn't matter if this wasn't true. It's simply a way of trying to say what it seems like the Bible says in many ways and in many places. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So he did it out of kindness. He did it, not us. You see him taking the initiative, him carrying it out. Uh, maybe I could have some people help me. Could somebody look up and read Deuteronomy 10, that first passage? Who would like to do that? And someone else to do Matthew 11, 27, Romans 8, 28, and 29, and Romans 9, 11 through 13. 
And I just want you to read loud. Okay, so we see there that in the Old Testament, the same concept, God, there was everybody in the world, but God chose certain people out of all the other peoples to set his affection on them and for them to be his people. Okay, the next one, uh, Matthew eleven twenty seven. Okay, so who's doing the choosing there? Anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Uh, Romans 8, 28 and 29. Okay, so those he foreknew, he predestined. He set out what their destiny would be before, long before it ever even got started. And those he predestined, he called. And the calling that's in, in the Bible means that it's, uh, it's not just uh, like when a mother calls Johnny and Johnny may or may not come. God's way of calling, it's, a, it's an inner sort of invisible thing. And Johnny always will come when God's kind of call. Even though Johnny's thinking that it's, he made the decision, says, well, yeah, I do, I do want to come. That's a, it's sort of a mysterious sort of a thing, but nevertheless, it's called the effectual call. So those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called in that kind of a way. And those he called came, and they were justified by faith. And so we just see God has set up this sort of chain of events. Romans 9, 11 through 13, for our most troubling passage. But again, we see the same sort of a thing, God making, doing things in such a way that there wouldn't be any doubt that he really was making a choice. I love uh, what Spurgeon said one time. He says, you know, people say they have this, a problem with this uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. He says, I've always had a huge problem with that. He was a Reformed Baptist pastor 150 years ago. But they ha always have a problem with um, Esau I hated. He says, I've never had a problem with that. What I can't figure out is why it says, Jacob, I loved. He says, we all are, should be under the wrath and punishment of God forever. The wonder isn't that God doesn't save everyone. The wonder is, why does he save anyone? But anyway, well, we'll so let that suffice it to say that it is something that's clearly stated in the scripture what some people try to do just because they don't like the idea for different reasons is they say, well, I know it says that, but that's not really what it means. And they're sort of trying to get God out of a jam by saying, well, what happens is, is that God looks way down the corridors of time and sees that, that well, if I, I know that when I say uh, come, that this person will be a particularly good one, so I'm going to, so I'll call them. And these others that they wouldn't have done much with it anyway, they would have been a kind of a crummy Christian, I won't call them. And so that's a predestination, but based on foreknowledge. And actually, if you look at what is it, what is it really based on? It's based on our response. In other words, it's based on us. In other words, God saw something in me better than others, and I got the prize. At the final analysis, you could get to heaven and say, well, God picked me because he knew I was a worthy investment. And that's a problem biblically to view things that way even though you're supposedly trying to get God out of a jam, <clears throat> let God get out of his own jams, please. So, the second point I want to make is that it's logical. Most people would say they believe that God is sovereign. I haven't found too many committed Christians that say, no, God really 
has to take tranquilizers, poor guy, because he just cannot handle everything. He does what he can. He means well. He's sort of like mom, you know, afraid, tired mom who does the best she can, but she doesn't maybe always get the bed made or doesn't get always your socks folded and in the drawer. But she means well, you know. And I, you don't find that many Christians that view God that way. Most Christians would say, no, I believe that God is sovereign. Well, what does that mean? It means that God is in complete control. Well, where do we get that from? Well, we believe that he has all power. These are things pretty much all Christians agree on. We call him the almighty God. That's what that means. He has all power. He has all might, so he can do anything that he wants to do. He has all knowledge. Psalm 139 says, God knows when I sit down, when I stand up. He knows my thoughts before I even think them. He knows the end from the beginning. A thousand years for God is like a day. So for him, Jesus was crucified two days ago. He was with David three days ago. I mean, it's all very, as Tozier said, everything for God happens in his today. He doesn't have a yesterday. For God, he exists in all times, all at the same time. Because he's not bound by time. Right? <laughs> wow. Okay, so it would be logical that if God is really sovereign, then nothing could happen apart from his permission and his at least permissive will. He's never the author of sin. He doesn't make anybody do anything bad. So are we prepared to say that these things are not true? No, these, these things are true. He has all power. He has all knowledge. But what do they imply? They imply that God is in complete control and sovereign even in things like our salvation. Third point I'd like to make is that it's necessary, the doctrine of election that God has chosen us from the foundation of the earth, not based on anything that we've done. It's necessary because the Bible's diagnosis of us is that we are dead in sin. We're like the, the valley of dry bones. Not all are saved. We already know that. The Bible says that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Many are those that will enter by it. We also know that when somebody's truly dead, they can't be expected to do good or evil. I mean, when we're looking for volunteers to do VBS, one place we don't go is the cemetery. I mean, whatever our friends there were going to do, they've done. And whenever there's something missing, someone, I have a box of books that's missing out of my office. I also don't go to the cemetery. They can't do anything good or evil. And the Bible says, he says, now that's what your condition is before Christ. You're dead. And so God doesn't come and say, well, if you'll do this and this and this, you don't say that to a dead person because they can't do good or bad. Bones also can't, dry bones or, or, or uh, when we were dead spiritually, we were incapable of choosing unless God enabled us to choose, uh, choosing him. And in John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me but I chose you. And the disciples were probably thinking, no. I mean, I was sitting there at the tax booth, and you said, Levi, come be my disciple. And I thought to myself, that's a crazy idea, but I'm going to do it. So, you know, Matthew, Levi, thinking, I, I did that. And uh, Jesus is saying, well, yes, but no. 
He says, the only reason why you decided yes was because I had already decided yes. And your yes was an echo of my yes. Now, each person is comp nevertheless completely responsible for their own actions. And this is the thing. That is the point. If you don't get that, you, then you drift off to, into heresy. See, that was the, the issue in the third and fourth centuries. It was over a different topic. It was over the, the identity of Jesus. How could he be both God and man, 100% one, 100% the other, but not be 200%? He's still just 100%. But if you add 100% and 100%, you don't get 100%. How can that be? So they, were, they tried to get God out of a jam by saying, well, it doesn't really mean that he was God. He was really a man, but he's a great man. And others would say, well, he was God, so he can't be man. But he really looked like one, but he really wasn't. That's the whole thing that the Nicene Creed is about. Very God of very God, that's not fairy God of fairy God. That's very God, or in other words, true God of true God, begotten, not made. Uh, being of one substance with the Father. All of that that we say on uh, those special Sundays of the Nicene Creed, which is my favorite, you know, um, is all trying to say that both of these things are completely true. Now, one, one thing it doesn't do is explain how could that possibly be. But it says we must hold on to this because the Bible says it very, very clearly, and it has to be, that Jesus was God. And we must hold on to the fact that he was completely man. Otherwise, his death on the cross meant nothing for us because we're people. We're not gods. We're people that need salvation. But only if he was God, would his death, would he be infinite enough to pay for everybody's sin? So both of them have to be true. So when we come to this area of God's election and predestination, his sovereignty, but on the other hand, what's the truth on the other side that you've got to hold on to? Man's responsibility. Because if, if you just hear election and predestination, what comes to your mind? You mean we're puppets? You mean fatalism? I mean, like, whatever, you know? And uh, God decides, you know, it's only happening because that, you know, that, that's the, basically the Muslim position. It's a fatalistic position. But the Bible just as strongly teaches that man is completely responsible and he is free in the sense that God, it's not a manipulated choice in any way. When you came to Christ, God did not drag you. He did not make you. No creature in heaven or earth or in hell can ever figure out how God drew you to himself. Because by all evidence that anyone will ever be able to see, it was your free choice. I used to do magic tricks, you know, illusions. I wasn't ever very good because I wasn't good at sleight of hand and, and also I'd get nervous, you know, trying to not make obvious what the trick was, etc. But, uh, but one of the things that, you know, illusionists do is they will, they'll have you, they'll say, pick a card, any card, right? But there are ways of doing it where they can, so to speak, force the card. But uh, they say, pick a card, any card. They've got a, something written on a, something over here, and you, you show what your card is, and they open up the thing. And before you ever pick the card, it was written on here what that card was. Now, this is, you know, it could easily be shown how that was done. I view what God has done in calling us to himself and electing us and calling us is like, it's like the biggest magic trick. And, you know, because, you see, if God had made us come, what could the devil say? Aha, uh -huh. you see? When they could choose, they chose me. They chose rebellion. They chose against you. 
You had to drag them back. And so I think that the reason our choice is so important and that it's a completely free choice is that God says, okay, watch this. I'm going to put my hands behind my back. And exactly the ones that I won't have picked will come, but you won't be able to figure out any way that I made them do it. It will be an absolutely free choice. And so that's how I kind of like to look at it, but that's my background anyway. So it is necessary, given our condition as dry bones, that God call us to life. And it's as we're resurrected that we're able to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. And then fourth reason why we believe it is it's what our confession states. But it only states it because of the first three things. That it's biblical, that it's logical, and that it's necessary. Uh, I didn't start off with this because I didn't want to get into deep weeds. At the beginning, they had ways of saying things that sort of kind of bog you down. But I thought, well, let's just take a look at it now that we've kind of got a little background and see if we can go into the esoteric language, old, old language a little bit and hear, hear what, the way they would say it. God before the foundation of the world. This is Westminster Confession, chapter 3, part 4. God before the foundation of the world was laid, predestined some of mankind to eternal life. He did this according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will. In other words, we don't know why he did it. But he has a good reason whatever it is. He has chosen this group of people in Christ that they would experience everlasting glory. He did this out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works, nor did he do it because he foresaw any perseverance in them. In other words, that he foresaw that they were going to be really good ones and hang in there with him. And that's why he picked them. That's not based on that. Nothing in anyone moved him to do this. That's why we say salvation is by grace alone. God's grace alone. He did this, all this to the praise of his glorious grace. And then it adds this interesting paragraph. I want you to notice this paragraph because this is, a lot of times, people haven't even read this, but it's uh, quite interesting how they also recognized it was sort of a hard topic. <laughs> it says, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care we should seek to know and obey God's will for us as revealed in the Bible. We should realize that since salvation is God's work alone, it is absolutely sure and secure. It's this doctrine that gives you a basis for your assurance of salvation. If your salvation is based at all on you, uh, how shaky is that? This truth should result in our being full of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and it should help us grow in humility and diligence it should be a tremendous comfort to all that sincerely obey the gospel. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So that's what our confession says. And now we want to get into a little bit about what are some thoughts that can help us if we're still struggling with this particular doctrine. The first point is to understand why this doctrine bothers you. Why would it be that this doctrine would bother you and the Incarnation doesn't bother you, or the Trinity hasn't bothered you that much? What is it about this doctrine that's like you keep kind of coming back to it and says, now what was it again and how could that be? And, and I believe uh, some people say, well, it's just that man is so proud. People want to say that they were good enough for God to save them. But my experience with most sincere Christians, that's not the main sticking point. 
Maybe with non-Christians it would be, but not with, not with the sincere believers. Most commonly, it's that it confuses you about God's character. How? Well, you think, well, is he truly loving? Uh, or, or does he show favoritism? He tells us not to show personal favoritism. And then it seems he does show personal favoritism. Is salvation random? Is it just whatever, like I just happen to get in and they just happen to not be in? Uh, since it's not based on anything in me, good or bad, the question, is God truly just? He tells us that we need to be just. Is he offering Jesus as though freely anybody can come, but not really? The game is really rigged. You know, you think, you know, we were just on deal or no deal out in Hollywood for our 25th anniversary. Not, we weren't contestants. We were just the blind audience, you know, that you hear their chuckles and stuff like that. But anyway, but uh, in that game, you know, there's always a thing, well, you could, you could win a million dollars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, what if it was all just rigged and, and they would say you could win a million dollars, but you really can't because they've already fixed things. So I think, it's my theory, but my theory why people come back and struggle with this doctrine more than the other, some of the other doctrines that we equally cannot explain is it makes us wonder, it, it shakes us in, in trying to understand who God is and how he is, if that's true. Okay, uh, Spurgeon likes to say it. I was just, just reading about Spurgeon on this same topic. He said, in the end, everybody gets just whatever they want. You want to go to heaven? You can go to heaven. He says, anyone that comes to me, I won't turn them away. You don't want to get, go to heaven? Okay. And so it's not as though there's, a, there's going to be a case where somebody comes and they want it so bad, and says, oh, you're not on the list. I am so sorry. You could have been a winner, but you're not. And, and others say, I don't, I don't want to go there, man. I, I, just, I am a party animal. I don't like church. I don't like God. I don't like religion. And there he ends up getting drugged into heaven. He says, no, in the end, everyone will have gotten just what they wanted. And so usually the people that are struggling with it in the sense of, I wonder if I'm one of the elect, it's one of the surest signs that you are. Uh, but the Bible would not say it exactly like that. In Peter, he says, be diligent to make sure your election. Second point, I think, that's helpful is to realize that your concerns are temporary. The fact that this doctrine bothers you does not necessarily mean it's a problem. For example, any of y'all ever afraid as children? I was terrified. I would, I'd need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. I would stand on the bed and leap so that whatever was under the bed wouldn't grab me. Now, I was very distressed by that, but was it a real problem? No. Turns out there never was anything under the bed. But I had to out... <laughs> I set you free. Uh, and uh, sexual education is another thing. Uh, um, those of you that have had children, and I never forget the first time I finally got through to my boys, they were like 10 and 8, what it really was as far as the sexual intimacy. And it was like this moment of just silence, like, no. Nah. <laughs> You're kidding. And with both of those things, childhood fears and sexual education, both of them were areas that, uh, with time, you grew into the truth. The problem wasn't with reality. It was with maturity. And in these things, you didn't 
mainly need more information. My parents could tell me there's nothing under the bed, but in the middle of the night, I'm still afraid there is. And I believe that with this area of election and everything, the same thing is going to happen. When we get to heaven, we'll wonder, what, now why, did, why was it that I ever had a problem with that? It's that it's, a, it's one of the tr greater truths about who God is. Now, why would you tell your kids about uh, sexuality? I mean, if, if you know they're going to have that problem, I mean, just about every child, the first time they hear about it, what do they think? Gross, dirty, that's got to be bad. Surely mom and dad don't do that. And... So why, but why, if you know ahead of time, you can talk to the parents, you know that's going to happen, why would you talk to them anyway? They need to know for other reasons. There are bad people out there. Uh, they need to know by the time they start dating that there are certain things that you can do that can end up with babies or STDs. It's because there's a greater need for them to know. So, and you, you don't tell them everything when they're four. They don't need to know it yet. And you would love to be able to wait till they were 16. But if you wait, then everybody else will get to them first. The dogs will get to them first and tell them who knows what. So you want to you get there before the street gets them and give them straight information and where they will see you as a source of, a trustful source of information on that topic. And in the same way, I think, we think, well, why did God even tell us? Why didn't he just elect us, predestined, what, whatever, take care of it, God, if, if you think it's a good idea, it must be, and I'll get it someday, just don't tell us. He told us for some kind of a reason, but I'm getting ahead of myself, so, but it, it's similar in the sexuality issue. Third point that can help us is to realize that our revelation is partial. God has given us true truth, but not exhaustive truth. It's all true, but it's not all there. And in the same way, I think, we think, well, why did God even tell us? Why didn't he just elect us, predestined, what, whatever, take care of it, God, if, if you think it's a good idea, it must be, and I'll get it someday, just don't tell us. He told us for some kind of a reason, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So, but it's similar in the sexuality issue. Third point is that can help us is to realize that our revelation is partial. God has given us true truth, but not exhaustive truth. It's all true, but it's not all there. Now, I brought a resource today known as the telephone book, the Columbia telephone book. Look at how big that thing is. You know, it's, it's bigger than, I have a big Bible, because it's got wide margins and everything. I wonder which margins are wider. My, okay, I got big margins and but uh, does Columbia love me more than God because it told me more than God did? It's bigger. Well, what other things could I wonder about? Um, does it mean that only the people in this book have a phone? You think people have cell phones, but they don't really because they're not in here. No, this is not exhaustive truth about phones. It's true truth, we hope. You know, when we look up a number, we hope that number will work. Uh, what, is it, what about my mother in Savannah? She's not in here. Does that mean she doesn't exist? Why aren't all the phone numbers in the world in a phone book? I mean, 
isn't that what you've been sitting around wishing you could get your hands on is a phone book with all the phone numbers in the world in it and all the cell phones? Would you want that? Where would you put that thing? You talk about a coffee table monster, you know? And then if you wanted to find, find a number, you wanted to find Dr. Ben Jones. You know how many Dr. Ben Jones there are in the world? You know, we don't want to know. And just on one page, there would be, you know, maybe 3,000 people with the same name. Exhaustive truth would be completely unuseful to us. And so what God has given us is not exhaustive truth, it's true truth. But what comes with that is, is that we don't know everything. He didn't tell us everything. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. In other words, the things he didn't tell us. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. If the Bible was so big we couldn't even read it in one lifetime, you certainly couldn't study it, and you couldn't get an overview. And as big as the Bible looks, that's, a, that's a, quite a bullion cube of all the soup he could have given us. I mean, this is just a small nugget of all that God knows. And he did that because he was very particular because he wanted what would be most helpful to us during our short time on earth. I have an illustration of a puzzle, a partial puzzle. You want to get somebody really aggravated who likes puzzles, and they put together the whole puzzle, and three pieces are missing. Now, did the dog eat it? Did one of the kids hide it because they want to be the person to put in the last pieces? But what if... Most of the puzzle was missing. Uh, so we have a, I've got a situation of puzzle pieces here. And let's just suppose we start putting the pieces together, and there's some things we can actually put together. And in God's revelation, we can really put together the pieces of God's sovereignty. He really is in control. It says it again and again and again. It gives stories. There are all these different things. We say God is sovereign. He's mighty. He's knowledgeable. He's in control. But we also see again and again and again and again that man is responsible. You reap what you sow. You do this. This is going to happen. If he who believes will be saved, he who is not believed uh, will be condemned. It's your choice. It's your decision. You'll be. That's why there's a judgment. And uh, and what he's, what's he going to look at in the judgments? All the all the deeds that you've done in the body. The Bible says. So you think, well, wait, wait a minute now. If that's true, how can this be true down here? If God is really sovereign, then how can we be responsible? And if we're really responsible, then how can God really be in control? Aha, you see? You found the missing pieces. Well, you haven't found them. You found where they ought to go, but they're not there. You know, you you say, well, how can you connect this and this? He didn't give us all the pieces. So, what should we do? Well, one thing we could do is we could pretend that we have all the pieces. No, surely God would have told us everything. So then we take the, few, the pieces we have, which is maybe one hundredth of the whole puzzle, and we say, no, 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 by definition, we've got all the pieces. We're just going to jam them together. Yeah, but they don't fit. Well, okay, let's throw out the parts we don't like. That way we'll, we'll fix it. Oh, why don't we invent some pieces? We'll get God out of a jam. Or maybe we should just take it as it is. Now, you see, this is the solution that we've come to with the Incarnation and the Trinity. We don't spend tons of time trying to invent ways out of the dilemma of the Trinity or that God was both God, Jesus was both, was both God and man. 
we state it, and with do this doctrine of election, that God is completely sovereign and man is completely responsible. And somebody says, yeah, but I don't get it. And you say, I don't get it either. But they're both completely true. And we need to embrace both of them. Otherwise, we have to throw out or twist something that God has said. Does that make sense? I like what St. Augustine said. He lived, he was born in 354 A.D. I was born in 1954, so I remember that. Augustine, who was a very studious believer, one of the greatest Christians that's ever lived, according to many, since the Apostle Paul, need it concern me if some people cannot understand this. Let them ask what it means and be glad to ask, but they may have to be content in just asking the question. For it is better for them to find you and leave the question unanswered than to find the answer without finding you. The success of your life is not primarily based on you getting all of your questions answered. It's based on you coming to know the only true and living God and to do his will for your life. Fourth point, they can't resolve the enigma. They can understand that you're saying this and this. They say, they can't, yeah, that can't be. But they can just easily No one has ever resolved it. Not resolved it. They can state it, they can believe it, but things that are in the mind of God that are, as far as you can tell, an apparent contradiction, like no one's ever resolved, logically, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I want to bring up a point of what I call directed revelation. If you think back to Deuteronomy 29:29, 29, 29, it says that secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children. Does anybody know how, can anyone finish it? That we may observe all the words of this law. In other words, the things God told us, he told us for a reason. He was looking to accomplish something. And I, to me, it gives the idea of a gun, but not truth of God is like a gun. But it's not just a gun, it's a gun sort of in a holder. Well, I've got a man here holding it, but let's just suppose it was a wooden holder, and the gun isn't just, just lying around, it's set in something and it's aimed at a particular target. And that whatever God has told us, he's told us for a reason, because he's been very selective about what he's told us. He says, there are 99 things I'm not going to tell them. There's one thing I'm going to tell them, because I want this to happen. I want them to think this. I want them to know this so that they can do this. There is a purpose behind everything he told us. Why he told us that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as an example were written for our instruction, the Old Testament, upon whom the ends of the ages has come. So it's pointed, God's truth, every truth that he told us is pointed at a particular target. So why did God tell us what he told us? For example, why would a parent tell his children about sex or about that there are bad men in the world? Well, because there are bad men in the world and forewarned is forearmed, you know? You don't want them to be paranoid that they're strangers that might grab them, but if they don't know that there are, then they might get grabbed. So you tell them, even though it's a, a difficult thing for them to bear. Why would God tell us that he is sovereign? Now let's think, try to think back through what we know he's told us he's in control and sovereign. Why would he tell us that? So we would be fatalistic? And I'm going to tell them I'm sovereign, so they'll just say, well, whatever, who cares? No, probably not. When I look at God, I'm supposed to think he's in control, he can do anything, I can fully trust him to take care of me. That's why he told you that he's in control. 
why he's sovereign. Why would he tell you that man is completely responsible, apart from the fact that it's true? So we would figure that God can't answer our prayers? No, it all depends on me. I'm responsible. No, nope, that's probably not it. When I look at myself, I'm supposed to think, I will reap what I sow. My prayers make all the difference because of God's promises. And I will give an account for all I do. With each of these truths, he told us those truths for a, a reason. And you get that mixed up. You pull the gun out of the holster. See, what we do is, what man tends to do is, we take the gun out of its holder. It's pointed at God, the, the idea of God's sovereignty. And its purpose is for our comfort, our strength, our assurance that we could sleep at night, that we don't have to worry about, maybe today I've got salvation, tomorrow I'll, I'll lose it. So it's pointed at that, but we put, take the gun out, this truth out of God's sovereignty and go, bang, 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 see what happens, you know? And he says, well, he told us that for a particular reason. Let's make sure we get that out of it, because that's what God wants. And why would he tell me that I'm completely responsible, apart from the fact that I am? So that I would pull it out of its holder and say, well, that means God can't do anything, and, and, uh, and my prayers don't matter, etc. Or my prayers make, uh, you know, no, not my prayers, but my, uh, you know, my, everything depends on my actions. So I view it sort of that God's truth is like a gun in a holder and it's aimed at a particular target. And I found that that's a helpful thought. And finally, as helpful thoughts on this doctrine of election, is to hang on to what is absolutely certain. There, there are some questions that we can't necessarily fully resolve to our satisfaction about how the interrelation between these truths is. <laughs> Uh, but we're absolutely certain that God, when all is said and done, will have been demonstrated to be the most loving individual that has ever lived in the whole universe. So we don't need to be worried about, well, yeah, but that doesn't sound loving, and I don't know, and maybe that, that sort of sounds like God is mean, etc. In the same way, when you tell your kids about human sexuality, and you think, does that mean that and my parents do that, and if they do that, then that, that is bad, and so th does that mean that they are bad, and all of these kind of things that you just haven't grown up into that truth yet. But when we've grown up into these truths, we will be so absolutely overwhelmed. God is, has, it, it will turn out that God was much more loving than we could have even imagined, because we've never seen anything like that, anybody like that. I mean, how could that possibly be? Just, that's how God is. But on the same, at the same time, we'll find out that God is so absolutely down to the smallest detail, completely and absolutely just. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That when it's all laid out and, and we can look at everything, we'll say, wow, that's amazing. That is absolutely 100% just and righteous and true. He didn't bend the rules for anybody. We'll also say, Jesus doeth all things well. We know that is true. And in the end, everyone will have freely chosen what they wanted. God forced no one, and yet he determined it all. You say, Henry, wait a minute, that can't be. <laughs> I know, but it is. And we only believe it because he said it. So... I think, uh, as a final word, I think we should focus on the privileges. Have you ever got those clearinghouse sweepstakes things that say you could be a winner and they, they have all those things in there that you could have won? Well, what if you really were a winner? 
I mean, most of us feel kind of like losers. There's so many things you've gone into. Competitions, lotteries, door prizes. Well, every once in a while you get something, you know, but, you know, you, you lost so many other times. But what if you found out that you had won or, or received or been picked for the most wonderful thing that had ever happened and it will last forever and ever? I mean, just think, what, what if it weren't true? What if the Bible were true? What if there really was a heaven? What if you really could live forever in it? Yeah, I know we believe it, but sometimes I don't know how much we feel it, you know? But if that was true, my goodness, you mean he can forgive every sin? You mean he will wipe away every tear, even my tears from middle school? Yep. He will heal every wound. He will take away every temptation and every inclination to sin. And the day is coming, and every day it gets closer and closer when you will never, ever sin again. You will never, ever sigh again. You will never, ever weep again. Could that be true? And if that's true, isn't that worth rejoicing about? I mean, just about get giddy says, well, but how can I know? He says, if you're even interested in it at all, that means that God's at work in you. That's the biggest clue that's already happening. No. Yes. Me? Yes. Isn't that great? The Bible says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I know life gets a little hard, and there are problems, and a flat tire, and problems with finances and problems with temptation and, and eating too much or, or missing out on things or problems in marriage or problems with your parents, inheritance, the house, the carpenter bees, you know. But it's just a little bit longer. It's all going to happen. And second, focus on the responsibilities. To live like a son of God. Not because of who you are, because of who he is, because of who he can be in you. To live as a daughter of God. Do you realize that you live according to who you think you are? And if you live thinking, well, they never expected much of me, and I think, you know, well, they never even wanted me on the basketball team, they kind of let me sit over on the sideline, but never would give me a, a, a uniform to dress out, and I was sort of this sad little creature, you know, I was tall and gangly, but too stupid to keep track of nine other guys running around on the court. And so, I mean, I'm so, that was years ago, but I'm still kind of affected by that. But as I think about, could it be that God has, by his own grace and for his own reasons that I don't know, has set his affection on me and adopted me into his family? That means I'm his son, and if he's a king, that means I'm a prince? Could it be? Be diligent to make sure of your calling, the Bible says. I don't have a reference on that, but it's in, in 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Anybody help? Peter. And um, how can you make be diligent to be sure that you're one of the called? Make sure you're one of the elect. Look for the vital signs. These are the things, just like a doctor looks for the, the dilated pupil, the heartbeat, 
uh, is the person breathing? Did I get them? What are the vital signs that if these are in your life and are growing, that means there's life there? Now, you don't live because of these things, but these are the indications. These are the symptoms of the elect. You're praying. Forgiving. You're able to forgive. You're believing what he has told you in the scripture. When you sin, you feel bad about it, and you confess it to God instead of blaming, blaming it always on others. You're trying to listen to him and find out what his will is, and you want to serve him. You feel like you're doing such a poor job. You feel like you fall short. All of those are signs of the elect. Isn't that great? It's not that you feel like you're so great or doing so well. No, no, no. In fact, that's the bad sign, you know. To, to, to the degree you're self-satisfied and feel like you're doing absolutely fabulous, then we, we're a little worried about you. But if you're kind of struggling and up and down, and, but you really want it and, and you're sorry you make God sad, says, oh, this is a good sign. You must be one of the God's chosen. So we're kind of at the end, and I don't know if my ramblings have been any help, but with this topic of the enigma of election, it's a truth that the day is coming when all our problems that we ever had in resolving these truths and other truths will just vanish like a phantom. In fact, we'll even wonder, now why was it that I ever had a problem with this wonderful truth? We'll get there because he's already predestined us. Let's close in prayer. Well, Lord, I feel like a three-year-old trying to make an omelet and not very good at it. It's hard to take wonderful truths that give us clues to the depths of God and do them justice. But woe to us if we don't talk about what you've told us. So we try, recognizing our limitations and falling back once again into your hands, saying, Lord, help us. Help us to understand what we need to understand. Do what we need to do. Love you more. Feel your love for us. And live as sons and daughters of God. And talk with everybody we know about what a great God they have the opportunity of freely choosing to believe in and follow through Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. 